This is Chapter 90 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. It's our annual holiday edition featuring some books perfect for giving. We'll talk to sports writer Jane Levy about her Babe Ruth biography. Humor writer Jerry Zezima regales us with stories about being a grandparent. We'll help you cross off the person who loves to travel from your holiday list. And we get the history behind our favorite Christmas carols with Mrs. Christmas. Former Washington Post sports writer Jane Levy intended to write a novel about the larger-than-life Babe Ruth. But during the course of her research, she uncovered the previously untold details of the Babe's childhood. The result is the new biography, The Big Fella. And she recently came into our studios and chatted with our Paul Murnane about the boy behind the legend. If you're listening to this and you're driving a car, I'm going to say don't follow this advice. But for everybody else, close your eyes for just a moment and try and picture the world of 1927. The Yankees are coming off that season that people still talk about to this day as being the greatest season ever for the Yankees. And you have Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth on tour going from town to town to town playing baseball. And if you can imagine... Uh, something like Hamilton on Broadway plus the Super Bowl plus the world's most successful rock concert tour. Maybe you have a, a sense as to what the clamor for uh, these two was like. That's Babe Ruth at the very height of his fame, at the very height of his uh, of his playing uh, skill. And now, imagine with the other half of your brain, we're back in turn-of-the-century Baltimore, turn-of-the-20th-century Baltimore. And here comes a Baltimore cop up to... St. Mary's Industrial School. No. St. Mary's? No. No? No, this is Harry C. Birmingham. Right. uh, A beat cop in Mm -hmm. western Baltimore, out of the western district in Uh Baltimore, who was a friend of, a childhood friend of Babe Ruth's father, George Herman Ruth Sr. Right. And his beat, as a a beat cop, Mm -hmm. uh, included George Herman Ruth Sr.'s cafe. Okay. So he saw the young babe, then known as mm-hmm. in his family as Little George, right? Um, hanging around in the bar, um, probably in- imbibing some yeah. f- the fruits of uh, his bad father's en- labor. Bad environment. Um, and he thought it was bad for this kid to be raised above a bar. And he also knew the family well enough to know that it was an unstable environment. Okay. And he's the one who volunteered to take Babe Ruth, young George, right. to St. Mary's Industrial School okay. for Boys. He was the one. Yes, right. on the western edge of Baltimore City. Jane Levy is uh, uh, clearly loves this uh, topic in the book, The Big Fella, about Babe Ruth and the world he created. I, I, I'm not the first to make the observation here, Jane, that uh, the babe spent his life maybe trying to outrun his childhood or trying to deal with it. He told his daughter, Julia, um, who is 102, as I speak, and um, uh, one thing about his childhood at St. Mary's, uh, which was this. He said, I never felt full. And that is both a statement of physiological hunger. He was bigger than all the other kids. And the brothers who ran St. Mary's had were always in debt, and they had something like six cents per kid to feed them. Um, so they had meat once every week. Guess what it was? Hot dogs. Um, but it was um, also a statement of the kind of emptiness he felt as a result of having been abandoned by his parents, 
to create a life and a self in a reform school, which he didn't deserve to be in because he wasn't what was then called an incorrigible, as many people came to believe. And that was a legal term in 1902 for young boys who got in trouble with the law and needed to be sentenced, as it were. He might have been called a handful by later generations. Well, Harry C. Birmingham, and this was the great find that I had sitting at my desk in my house up in Cape Cod last summer, and the, the cyber gods intervened. I was at, I was trying to check when Beirut's father's family uh, is, became Lutheran, and instead up pops this 1947 article by Roger Pippin, old Baltimore sports writer, about Harry C. Birmingham. And the salient quote was, you know, he wasn't a bad boy. He was no, he was, yeah, sure, he was mischievous, but no more so than any other boy. And he never gave us, meaning the police, any trouble. He went to St. Mary's. He was there until he was 19. Correct. But essentially, he was, he was bought by um, the owner of the, the, I guess it was a minor league team then, the yes. Orioles, the Baltimore Orioles. Right. He had learned to play baseball there, um, and he was at St. Mary's until he was 19 because he, he had nowhere to go, and he was friends with uh, Brother Matty, Brother Matt. Brother Matthias. Yeah. So Brother Matthias fills the role of the absent father, uh, George Herman Ruth Sr., who never bothered to go visit him all the time that his son was learning to create a life and a self um, by himself at St. Mary's. And Brother Matt was this, he was kind of the enforcer of the place. He was dorm prefect, whatever that means. Um, And he was also an assistant athletic coach. And he was a big shambling six foot four. Some people say six five, who knows, 225. He was big enough that the little room that he had to live in, the door couldn't open and shut because the, you know, his feet would hang out the door. And you know, part of the legend of, of Brother Matthias was formed in 1920 by Westbrook Pegler, who was then just a cub reporter trying to make a dime, who wrote the first authorized autobiography of Babe Ruth for a, you know, second-class news service. It was a serial, and he made up the entire story. So that he has Brother Matthias greeting this kid and sitting on his bed as Babe Ruth is crying his first night left alone at St. Mary's and saying, don't worry, Babe, you know, we have, and he actually has him calling him Babe then, which is, of course, not true either. But we have baseball teams, and why don't you come out for the Colts tomorrow morning? You know, other brothers have said to me there were other people there who were as caring and as instrumental as Brother Matt. But once Westbrook Pegler put this in writing, it became, you know, sort of stuck in repertorial amber. And and I'm not saying he was insignificant, but he was not the only guy. And I actually think given Babe Ruth's very unstable family, um, even though this was clearly an institution and he didn't have any family support, I think he was lucky to go to St. Mary's. And, and in your telling, uh, Brother Matt and then later Christy Walsh, who became Babe Ruth's agent, these were kind of the two significant figures in, in, in Babe Ruth's right. Life. Well, it starts with Harry Birmingham, who kept track of him once he took him to St. Mary's, and Babe Ruth would run away uh, and go and hide at the house of his cousins who lived still on the block where he had been living 
until his father up and quit the family lightning business and decided to open a bar on West Camden Street. And Harry C. Birmingham would come and get him and take him back to St. Mary's and say, you have to go back. You have no place else to go. I mean, which is, you know, incredibly sad. I mean, part of what was astonishing about this, Paul, was being able to excavate a childhood that he never spoke about, ever. And why would he? Because in that era, you know, admitting that your parents had been divorced, that your father had gotten custody of the three surviving children of that marriage because his mother had been found guilty of drunkenness and adultery, a crime in those days. Um, why would you want to talk about that? Today, you know, he would have gone on, you know, 60 Minutes. They would have had a big thing. They would have, it would have been poor babe and da, da, da. They would have turned it into, you know, uh, a way to sell sympathy for the babe. But then it was what my grandmother would have called a shanda, an embarrassment. And so you didn't talk about it. And people would say to Babe Ruth, so you're an orphan, right? Reporters would say, he would get really angry and say, no, I had parents. But he never went further. And because he never went further, the void in the first 19, about the first 19 years of his life enabled all this mythology, including Westbrook Pegler's fanciful account, uh, to prosper and become de facto, you know, truth. And his fame spread. I mentioned uh, Christy Walsh. Uh, his fame spread far and wide on the work of that guy. So Christy Walsh was really the original Jerry Maguire. And while he didn't actually say, show me the money, he was, in fact, saying to everybody he sold Babe Ruth to, show me the money. He was um, an out-of-work Failed publicist, failed ad man, failed sports cartoonist, failed uh, cub reporter who in February 1921 decided to start a syndicate of ghost-written material. And he recognized that if he could get Babe Ruth, then all the other big names would follow. He actually wanted to do entertainers, not athletes. And then he realized, oh, athletes are in the press every day. This is a better idea. So his nephew, Richard, told me this story. So in February 21, just as Ruth is getting ready to leave for spring training, Christy Walsh finds out where he's staying, climbs out the fire escape, climbs up the fire escape. The window to Babe's, ro <laughs> Babe's room is open to crack. He climbs through it. Babe is in bed with a blonde, slaps him on the butt and says, I want to represent you. Now, this is the kind of moxie I think Babe Ruth would have appreciated also offering him at least 10 times as much for these alleged um, by Babe Ruth, you know, stories uh, as he had been getting before. And you think about today, you know, when a, a star athlete shows up and there's a room full of lawyers and agents and they're all sitting around a, a mahogany table in their best in their best coats and ties. It was a more informal process, we'll say, back then. Well, <laughs> it, it, they were inventing it. They were inventing how to be famous in America and how to merchandise an athlete as an entertainer. And Christy Walsh made the argument, which is very modern, you know, if you're going, you're, you're going to pay Babe Ruth, not just for the balls he hits out of Yankee Stadium, but for the tushies he puts in seats in Yankee Stadium. And so it was starting the process of evaluating worth based not just on accomplishment and skill, but on fame 
and on your on the and on the quantifiable um, importance of that fame. I don't want to give too much of the uh, the book away, but it's the big fella by Jane Levy, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. I'm wondering why you decided to take on on Babe Ruth. And I, 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 I'm, I'm wondering if this came from the experience in, in writing the book that you, you wrote about Mickey Mantle? No. It, no. <laughs> my theory, my theory um, shot down. Um, I, I thought I was crazy, and I didn't want to do it, to be perfectly honest. I said the one thing I'm not doing is a nonfiction book about Babe Ruth. I'm, all of my friends and family will tell you this is true. I originally wanted to write a novel about him, and the, the impulse there was that he had become such a caricature both literally in the drawings that were done of him with his huge chest causing him to, you know, look like he was going to fall over his skinny little ankles, um, and, in, and, in, and in the the image that we held of him. So I wanted to be able to inhabit that person, and I thought the only way I was going to be able to do it was fictionally. What I didn't know was that by the time I got around to doing it as nonfiction, that the digital revolution – would provide enough material, both in family documents and in old newspapers, that I could do what I wanted. I could inhabit him. Um, I could show what it was like to be Babe Ruth at the apex of his fame and what it was like to be around Babe Ruth, which is why I chose to do the 1927 barnstorming tour, where real folks you know, and boys could not only get near him, they hung on him. I think you've probably looked at the picture that's in the end flaps of the book, which is a picture of him surrounded by 5,000 kids all trying to cram into one picture frame. The world's biggest selfie. It, 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 <laughs> and that's well, – that, you, you're saying exactly the right thing because this was taken in Syracuse in, during uh, or after an exhibition game in season in August, which Yankees used to play those games, and he was paid extra to participate in them. And here are these kids literally hanging on him like a cheap boa. And it's a really significant picture because I've never seen one in which his smile is more genuine. This is where he felt most comfortable in his skin. But it's also really modern because all the kids except one poor kid who came in a beanie and a tie, God knows his mother must have (laughs) dressed him, um, all of them are looking at the camera. And so it's a modernist you know, um, photograph. Yes, they wanted to be near him, but they wanted to be seen being near him as well. But putting together the book, you talk about the the information that is floating around in cyberspace about him. Um, You had to take a look at everything, almost everything that's said about Babe Ruth has two sides um, or uh, is questionable. So even the stuff that's out there is, is, is like the little fragments and little segments. You have to evaluate everything that is said about him because, as you said at the beginning of the interview, sometimes what somebody said is made up. Totally. Look, there were many biographies that had been written, and they're all good. They all contributed something important about our understanding of him, starting with Bob Creamer's in 1974. But when I read them all, and I read them all before I agreed to do this book, um, before I signed the contract— what was glaring was that his childhood was completely absent. It was as if he emerged fully-fledged in a Baltimore Orioles uniform in the spring of 1914, you know, out of nowhere. And so, as I said before, the, the myths about those first 19 years of his life 
orphan, incorrigible, you know, runabout um, were – I had to delve into those. And if I couldn't have found, you know, the answers to those first 19 years, it wouldn't have been worth writing because then I would have been doing the same thing as had been done before well, and I didn't want to do that. If not for baseball coming along for him, I guess he probably would be – he would have gone to work as maybe a laborer at – I guess in eighth grade is when they turned them out from St. Mary's, if not for the – No, they they actually continued. He he was a lifer there. Most kids only stayed a year and a half or two years, and he was there pretty much for, you know – from 1902. Well, he would have been a tailor. He was in the tailor shop. Yes. They, he learned three things, four things at St. Mary's. How to make a great collar, and he would always check his own from then on. And he was a very stylish dresser. It's one of the you know, misimpressions about him. And how, to, how to throw a baseball, uh, what uh, Grantland Rice would later call his whistling shooters, um, and how to hit a baseball, thanks to Brother Matthias. But he learned a fourth thing. Those boys slept head to toe in long rows of wrought iron beds in dorm rooms that were made for 90 that were crammed with 130 kids. There was no privacy. There was no personal artifacts in any of the pictures. What he learned was how to be public. What Babe Ruth couldn't be was alone. So what would he have done if not for baseball? He was such a consummate athlete. I mean, he he apparently he actually worked once for a while as a ballroom dance teacher. That, you know, I mean, it's like, where did that come from? He told that to an LA Times reporter, I think. Um, you know, there are, there are originals in American life. And as Mike Rizzo, the um, general manager of the Nats in Washington said, he was the original original. Somebody will always come along and take what is known and do it differently and expand our notion of what's doable and possible. So he would have found a way. Jane Levy, it's a wonderful book. The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created from the author of the book about uh, Mickey Mantle, The End of Childhood. You've written about Sandy Koufax. When I was reading this book, I had to tell you at times I wanted to shed a tear for this guy and, and the childhood that he endured. May I? Do we have time for me to say one other thing? Sure. So at the end of his baseball career, which ended you know, miserably in June 1935, having played a couple of months with the Boston Braves, the only team that would have him because uh, he was old, he was fat, he was slow. Um, baseball didn't find any use for him. They couldn't find any place for him. And the last 13 years of his life until he died in August 1948 were fairly miserable because he didn't know who he was if he wasn't Babe Ruth. So... It, re, it was a recapitulation of the abandonment that he had felt as a child. And I think they, those years were excruciating. But the things that he did do, the few things that he got opportunities to do, invariably involved kids. And three weeks before he died, maybe a month, I could have the date wrong, he did a radio interview. Now, remember, he comes into baseball, 1914. There is no radio. Fame is local. It's is circumscribed by the, you know, the, the circulation of, a, of your local newspaper. He does a radio interview in Minneapolis with an 11-year-old boy named Johnny Ross who is blind. 
And Ruth can barely talk because of the nasopharyngeal cancer that is killing him and strangling his vocal cords. And Johnny asks him who's going to win the pennant, and Abe says, you know. And Johnny asks him about his autobiography, which Babe barely participated in and was released that summer because he could barely talk. And finally, Johnny runs out of things to say, and Babe hugs him and says, it's okay, Johnny. I think we're both just about out of words. Jane Levy, 70 years after Babe Ruth died, we're still talking about this guy. He still matters. He's, you know, I, I'd say he's still the guy. I, well, I walked by your, your newsroom before with all the pictures of Babe Ruth down there. You know, he's an inimitable character. Everybody can see what he looks like. Kids who don't care about baseball, who don't play baseball in 2018, they know that name, Babe Ruth. And partly the name was pure genius. It was not concerted as such, but it was genius. I'm waiting for your next book. <laughs> You're going to have to wait a while, Paul. <laughs> Jane, thank you so much. It's, it's great to sit down and talk to you. It's a, my pleasure. Did this year kind of get you down? Well, the latest book from humor columnist Jerry Zezima is a reminder that everyday life can be funny if you take the time to appreciate it. We shared a couple of laughs about Nini and Poppy's excellent adventures. Your columns and your books cover everyday life. When did you realize you could make a living writing about the the day-to-day things that happen being a parent and now a grandparent? I knew I wanted to write in high school. Um, I went to Stanford Catholic High School, now Trinity Catholic in, uh, in Stanford, Connecticut. And my decision could be encapsulated in one word, algebra. I could never do algebra. I was always good in subjects where I really didn't have to know the answers, like English composition. And um, I just loved to write, and um, I wanted to write uh, funny stuff. And I said, how can I parlay this into a career? And I you know, read uh, The Stanford Advocate as a kid and saw columns by uh, Irma Bombeck and Art Buckwald, and I said, that's what I want to do. It's like being a stand-up comic, except you don't have to show up. So, um, you know, it was very convenient. And um, I, I knew early on uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted my, my professional goal as a kid and then later on was to be silly and irresponsible and actually get paid for it. And um, I got a job at the Stanford Advocate, um, my hometown paper, with no experience. I had no experience at all. And they gave me a job. And I was many things for a while. And finally, I got, I, I, I failed miserably. And one thing after another, I was a sports writer, I was a feature writer, I was an editor. And uh, there's really nothing left to do but, but be a humor columnist. And God bless the Stanford Advocate. Um, they gave me a chance a column, and a career. And I got a humor column, and um, I've been writing it since 1985. And uh, I love it. Your family really does feature prominently, and there are no um, aliases for anyone who gets featured in your columns. Is this something no. that is this something that you've had to work on them over the years, or they're just used to always being at the center of what you're writing? They, they, they're, they're used to it. Um, I I, uh, I don't use aliases. Uh, the names have not been changed to protect the innocent. The only guilty one is me. Um, I poke fun at myself, and um, 
It's good-natured, self-deprecating humor. Um, I, when I write about my family, it's always uh, with love and warmth. And, um, I, you know, I write a lot about other people and, and uh, things. It's, the, you know, the funny little things of everyday life. And um, I think a lot of people not only can recognize themselves in it, but they appreciate it. You know, they need a laugh or a chuckle or a smile. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't profess that, uh, this is, uh, any, any great shakes, but I think it does have some purpose, which is to give people a, a break from, um, you know, otherwise bad stuff. And over the years, you know, you've, you've evolved as a person, you've evolved as a parent and now a grandparent. What do you find the, right. the biggest difference being between the two? Between being a parent and being a grandparent? Yes. Um, being a, a parent is wonderful. Being a grandparent is grand. Um, it's, I mean, I, I've loved both. Um, I have two daughters. Um, they're now mothers. Um, they are wonderful, talented, well-adjusted young women, um, because they take after my wife. Um, but having grandchildren, I won't say one is better than the other, but, uh, everything I heard about, I've heard about being a grandparent is true and more. There is nothing like it. Um, and I, I wrote in, um, I believe I wrote in the introduction to, uh, to this latest book, uh, Nini and Poppy's, uh, excellent adventures. Um, my wife is Nini, I'm Poppy. But, you know, people often ask if I spoil my grandchildren. And my answer is no. That's my wife's job. My job is to corrupt them. <laughs> so I think we're both doing uh, very good jobs. But, um, you know, this is my fourth book. Um, the, the first one um, was Leave it to Boomer because I'm a baby boomer. The second one, uh, The Empty Nest Chronicles. I'm an empty nester. The third one was uh, Grandfather Knows Best. I wrote it right after I became a grandfather, and and this one, um, Nini and Poppy's Excellent Adventures. We now have three grandchildren, and um, you know they've figured uh, prominently in, in a lot of my recent uh, writings. But uh, it's you know it's all written with uh, love and warmth and, and humor, and I think a lot of people can can see themselves in it. I think that really does come across in the writing. I mean, the stories that. They make you chuckle, and they're, they're a nice little escape from everything else that's going on. And the grandkids are great, too, because you now have a new audience for, for all your dad jokes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I've, um, you, you discover things um, that you didn't know existed until you're part of them. Um, for example, being a, a grandparent, I, I remember um, taking uh, my uh, older granddaughter um who is now five and a half this was a couple of years ago and she now has a little sister and uh, my wife and i have a uh, wife and i have a grandson um and i i took uh took my granddaughter to the uh to the park you know to the playground and there were a couple of other guys there with their granddaughters and um you know, we started talking about how great it is to be uh, you know, a grandfather and and, uh, and all that. So, um, as I said, you know, there there are um, aspects or facets of life you didn't know 
existed until you're part of them. And uh, it's great. What do you want readers to take away from this book and also from your columns? Well, they can uh, they can take away that um, they'll have a, uh, a good time, I think. They'll get some laughs or chuckles or, or smiles. Um, they might... They might agree that, uh, you know, the, my books are crimes against literature. I'm very <laughs> proud of that. Um, they also come in handy for propping up wobbly table legs. But uh, beyond that, um, I think they're nice little nuggets and escapes from everyday life. But not that you have to remove yourself from everyday life, but it's yet another um facet of it. I mean, there's so much bad stuff going on. You know, I think most people would uh, would agree that, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that you read and see and hear is not positive. And this is. And, um, uh, you know, thank goodness for, as I said, the Stanford Advocate, um, uh, Hearst Connecticut Media Group, uh, which is a, a collection of, uh, of papers in Connecticut that run my column and Tribune News Service um, distributes them to papers nationwide and abroad. So um, I, I think, you know, a lot of readers realize that um, this is part of life. You know, there's good stuff and bad stuff, funny stuff and sad stuff, comedy and tragedy. And this is the, the lighter side of life. But, you know, most people love that. It's, um, it's not that it's, uh, as I said before, an escape, although it, it can be, but it's just a wonderful part of life. And uh, as I said, I think a lot of people can, can see themselves in it and, um, and enjoy it. And of course, if they suffer from insomnia, you know, it could be valuable too. <laughs> well, Jerry Zezimo, the book is Nini and Poppy's Excellent Adventures. Thank you for taking some time to talk to us. And I think uh, I think a lot of people might uh, really relate to what you write in the book. And, and I think I look forward to more of the trials and tribulations that uh, you're going to be writing about in the future. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. I, I really appreciate it. As I said uh, before we went on, um, thank you for lowering your otherwise high standards to have me on. If people are interested in my books, they can go to Amazon and, uh, and get them and I uh, hope they enjoy them. I, I don't think I lowered my standards too much. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay, confession time. I have a very long travel bucket list. And after flipping through the new edition of National Geographic's Journeys of a Lifetime, that list has gotten considerably longer. I spoke to Nat Geo's travel magazine editor, George Stone, about the gorgeous new book. This is an update of the original book, Journeys of a Lifetime. Why was the time right for a second edition? The world changes and uh, places change. But most importantly, the way we see the world does change. Um, in the time since the first book came out and this book came out, for instance, we've had this entire revolution of Instagramming. <laughs> and, uh, um, and that does change how we see the world. And so... Um, in one section, um, in Cartagena, Colombia, um, we talk about a street art tour. The appreciation of street art, of art outside of museums created by everyday people, um, you know, un, kind of unscripted um, in unexpected places, um, is an appreciation that has really kind of come to the fore um, in travel 
in the in the past decade, and um, and I think it's really important. So, the book is full of experiences that I think um, represent that the way we engage with the place has changed over time, and we're beginning uh, more and more to appreciate that aspects of culture like food um, are truly important um, portals to understanding difference in the world and sometimes similarity as well. Are people really looking for that local authentic experience now as opposed to maybe hitting the highlights they've read about in college or something like that? That's right. And the um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a bucket list, but um, the most important thing we can do, and I do think that travelers nowadays are, are really embracing this, is to personalize a trip, meaning travelers are asking themselves, what am I personally curious about? What what makes me excited about the world? Is it spirituality? Is it creativity? Is it food? Um, and, um, and then using interest as guidelines, as guidance um, for where to go, as opposed to a kind of um, epic list of the most important places humanity has ever um, you know, devised, that's different. Um, there, it's wonderful to go see uh, Machu Picchu, to go see the Taj Mahal, but I think it's more personally meaningful uh, for most travelers to go to a place that speaks to them. I love the inclusion of these top 10 lists and how varied they are, whether mm. I just opened up to the top 10 bridges or, you know, oh, yeah. like it's it, it's really a great way to explore based on your interests. That's right. And um, and and I think it also shows, again, that the way we see the world is is a bit different. And I think it's because. Uh, my theory is because we are traveling around the world with our cell phones, we are taking pictures. So we are creating our own story as we go. We're no longer um, passive tourists. And um, not only that, but we're also our own publishers. So when we're with our phone, we are looking at a, at a bridge in the world. We're seeing it differently because there's something we can do with it. It's not just there, and it's not just about tra you know crossing a river. Suddenly we see in that bridge an opportunity for some kind of creative expression that means something to us or some communication to people, say, back home that um, says, hey, look at this cool thing I saw. And um, and isn't it kind of neat? I actually i am a creative person, too. I, I chose to come here. I took this cool picture. I'm sharing it with you. So I think that the the way we are engaging with the world is different. And um, and that's why it's it's important not just to update this book, but that's why it's important to have 500 places or more um, experiences in the world that anyone could have in a lifetime, because the whole goal is um, is to connect your own curiosities with it, with a place that can really, um, you know, help you move forward um, by connecting with the world. And speaking of cool photos, I mean, this book is packed with stunning photographs that we've come to expect from Nat Geo. We're proud of it, too. So thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, we um, I mean, we put a lot of effort into it. Um, one thing that's important about um, about travel photography is um, and, and it is different. National Geographic is known for lots of different forms of photography. There's documentary photography, for instance. But travel photography really has an emotional resonance to it. And um, and there's something about a travel picture that um, we always say, does it make you want to go there? So I'm editor of National Geographic Travel. Traveler magazine, and um, as well as our, our digital content, and um, when we look at a picture, it's a remote, you know, thing, a museum piece that's very impressive because we're so technical. 
No. Is Does it make you want to go there? Does it inspire an emotion? Um, is it accessible to you? Not every place has to be in the world for sure. But one of our goals with our photography is to show the world as it is and also to the extent we can to open up places in the world um, so that other people, so that our audiences can make connections. You're an avid explorer. What's your top tip for people who want to get out there and explore the world? It really is to... Take time when you're travel planning to be very honest with yourself about what you want and what you need. Do not just go to the great place because people have said, oh, you must go see it. Um, some of the time that can lead to over-tourism. So you have a, a, a Machu Picchu and you have a seasonal glut of, of travelers, or that could also be cities. Um, everyone must go to Amsterdam. Well, Amsterdam is very crowded. Maybe you don't want to. Um, the most important thing, because time is precious and money is hard to come by, is to figure out what are you inspired by? What makes you happy? It's not a competition. And uh, um, if you are happy being in the wilderness quietly, if you don't need to see the hippest city and what's happening with like super frothy coffee there, then that is what you need to listen to. And the second thing is, um, is travel is, 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 is an effort. And so you want to put yourself in the very best position before you travel to make sure you're a little bit relaxed, that you're not as harried up to the minute you get on the airplane and that you have to unwind for the first three days. You kind of want to give yourself um, the gift of perspective and breathing and time so that you can really treasure th what you've given yourself, which is this opportunity to see a part of the world that inspires you. I think that's a great note to land on, and hopefully we've inspired a few people out there to really think about it and pack their bags. I hope so. Um, we got a full year of travel ahead. So, George Stone, thank you so much for stopping by and talking to us about the second edition of Journeys of a Lifetime, 500 of the World's Greatest Trips from National Geographic. This time of year, you either love or hate constant stream of Christmas songs being played on the radio, at the mall. Personally, I love it. And so does Renee Baker. But that isn't really a surprise considering she runs a company of professional Christmas carolers. Nicknamed Mrs. Christmas, she believes holiday songs are spirit boosters no matter what month it is. She explains her thinking in her book, Defeating Scrooge, How to Harness the Power of Christmas Carols to Revive Your Spirit Any Time of the Year. Do you have a pretty cool job, which is a professional Christmas caroler? Why don't you first tell me how you got started? Oh, well, I, I first got started as a child, uh, standing next to my mother in church singing. <laughs> and she, I like to joke that, uh, well, she likes to joke as well that I have her voice, but not her ear, because she's very tone deaf. And so I would work really hard uh, trying to discern the right notes to sing from what the organ was playing on the other side of the church while standing right next to her singing something very off. And so that helped me become a close harmony singer. It helped train my ear. And so when I was even in middle school, I was putting together a cappella groups and in high school, taking part in choirs and vocal competitions. And I began to dream of using my voice in a professional way, in a bigger way, and specifically in New York City. So I did go to college at the University of Michigan, and I studied musical theater, and I got a degree in that. And then I did come to New York, and I 
saw that everybody was frowning. <laughs> it just seemed like there was a lot of frown pollution is what I called it. And so I began to dream about putting together caroling groups, groups that would bring joy to the city, not just with our music, but also through random acts of kindness that I call smiles. So I I named my company I Smile in New York Productions, and SMILE is an acronym. It stands for Shine My Inner Light Everywhere, and that's what we try to do. Uh, and we're never more successful at it than when we're out caroling and bringing people of the city and beyond together in song. So I'm sure that there are some Scrooges out there who might think, oh, God, she's got to sing Christmas songs all the time. That has to be really annoying. <laughs> but, but, you, but you make the argument in your book that carols can actually be spirit reviving any time of the year. Why don't you tell me why you feel that way? I'll tell you the story of what happened to me. I mean, this is our 22nd year of caroling with my company, and there's about 30 carolers from the Broadway community every year, and they think I have the corner on the market with Christmas spirit. And maybe I do, but there was one year that it was just missing. It was gone, and I, it just blindsided me. I never saw it coming, and it was really painful. And I didn't realize just how much my spirit meant to me, my, my holiday spirit, until it was not there for me. And I tried every which way during that caroling season to revive it, to get it back, and nothing was working. So after the caroling season was in the rearview mirror. I got through it by relying on my theatrical training. January, I'm sleeping up the pine needles after taking my tree out to the curb. And I was just asking myself, what happened? And I retraced my steps. And I traced them all the way back to the previous January when I'd had sort of a spirit and faith-shaking event that happened to me. And I didn't realize I was still carrying that around with me. It had really sort of cracked some of the foundational aspects of my faith and my confidence in my own judgment in people. And uh, so what I didn't realize was that was tied into my Christmas spirit and somehow it had broken what I now call holiday spirit triggers. So I said to myself right there and then, I, I can't go through another season like that. It's just too painful. And so I thought, what can I do to be proactive and try to get it back and keep it? And right in front of me as I was sweeping up the pine needles was a carol book sitting on top of uh, one of our boxes that housed one of my carolers' top hats. And I just picked it up and I thought, I wonder if this might be the answer. And I, of course, I knew a lot about carols. I've been singing them my whole life and professionally for a good deal of my life by then. But I realized that there must be so much more that I didn't know. So right then and there, I gave myself a goal to study a carol a week for a year, but looking at them in ways that I never had before, like what was the life of the composer and lyricist like? What prompted them to write it? What country was it written in? What was going on in the country at the time? Who was the audience? And not only that, but... Since the carol has been written, long after its writers have passed, the carols still have a life that touches other people's lives. And I found that fascinating as well. So what I found doing it during the year, it's not like I'm going, <laughs> going around singing outside <laughs> uh, carols to people, but it's a quiet, introspective process where I'm looking at them and studying them and learning. And just that very first week that I, I 
set on this journey, it worked. I got so excited about what I was learning right off the bat uh, that I can, I've been doing it for years now. And I have come to realize that why it works so well earlier in the year is because you're not expecting anything of your Christmas spirit or your holiday spirit at that time of year. And when it's December, you are expecting it. You've got the holiday decorations and the holiday music, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, to feel that spirit or an assumption that you will. And it's hard to get it back at that time if you're blindsided and you realize that something has shaken your faith earlier in the year. And I think a lot of people would find that surprising because, like you said, most people just really think about it, you know, as Thanksgiving dinner comes to an end and the Christmas carols come out (laughs) on the radio and everything. So, you know, I guess not everybody is going to sit down and go through a carol a week like you did. What what can someone do if they they find that they're feeling a little blue? Even I don't do it every week (laughs) these days. That's how I started out. And it was very it was so exciting that. I I kept it up, but I think even if you just look at some of the interesting histories of some of these carols, um, it will be surprisingly restorative. I've had people talk to me after, after reading my book saying they can't wait for the carols to start in December now because, you know, we feel like kids in the classroom shooting our hands up, you know, oh, oh, I've got the answer. Let me tell you what I've learned about this carol. It's really fun. And I found that it's a very successful way to reset your, your holiday spirit trigger and just find that joy again because it's learning something different about something that is comforting and familiar to you. And I think when we're surprised like that to learn that there's something we had no idea about that from a carol that we've been singing our whole lives, it's really exciting. And it just it just is a little instant burst of joy, but it lasts. Uh, every time I sing these carols now, I love introducing them and telling people what I know about this that surprises people. What was the most interesting fact that you found out during the course of your reading and your researching? Oh my gosh, there are so many. I just gave a TEDx talk last week, and it's about how music actually has the power to connect people emotionally. And uh, there's current day evidence of that, and there's science that proves that. But I started out the talk with one of the stories that I learned about on this process, which you may have heard of the unofficial Christmas truce of 1914 and World War I. Uh, there were the two trenches, and in one you've got the German soldiers, and in the other you've got the British Allied forces. And uh, on Christmas Eve, around 8.30, the firing had nearly come to a standstill when the Brits heard something wafting over to them, voices, and they listened, and they heard that the Germans were caroling to them in German. And the British didn't realize, or they, they just weren't sure if this was a trick and they were being set up for some kind of ambush. They, they didn't know, but they listened. And when the Germans finished the carol, the English started caroling back to them in English. And so it went back and forth for a little while, each side serenading the other in their native tongue from down in the relative safety of their trenches. And then, the most amazing thing, the Germans started singing Adeste Fidelis, and that is O Kamoi Faithful in its original Latin. Well, the Brits knew the Latin verses as well, and so they joined in singing with them. So you had enemy soldiers at war 
singing the same song in the middle of a battle. And it was that event, them singing a carol together, that actually brought them out of their trenches to greet each other in the middle of what was called no man's land and to begin to understand each other as fellow human beings. And they spent Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, exchanging gifts, eating together, and playing games, and making each other laugh, and exchanging contact information and vowing to stay in touch after the war. So that was really amazing. And it was not them who fired the first shots that resumed the battle. It was the commanding officers, the British commanding officers, who were not there during that event when they were singing together. So for 48 hours, they celebrated in peace. And uh, one of the soldiers, one of the British soldiers, 30 years later, said in an interview that if the officers hadn't interfered, that he firmly believed that neither side would have ever fired another shot. It's really a true testament to the Christmas spirit. And I guess my question for you is that sort of feeling, that's that that sort of thinking, is that something that we really should tap into year round? Well, that's what I've been doing with this quiet process. And I think that if more people did tap into, um, you know, the power of music as a peacemaking tool, but, um, you know, for for people who have Christmas or holiday spirit and it's important to them and these carols mean something nice to them, then this would be a process that, that would work for them to tap into that music as a, as a peace-building tool. And I'll tell you, you know, I you, obviously we're, we're busiest around the Christmas season, but it's not just about Christmas. Um, I have a very diverse group of carolers. You know, like I said, I've got about 30 each year from the Broadway community. And, of course, I've got Christian carolers. But I also have Jewish carolers, Buddhist carolers. I've got at least one atheist caroler. And I just hope one day I find out that I've got a Muslim caroler. We're a very diverse group. And we're singing in one of the most diverse cities in the world. And I've consistently seen, year after year, music bringing very different groups of people together as we invite them to carol with us. We'll be caroling somewhere like at the New York Botanical Gardens. And you'll, you'll have people from all over the world live there. Some of them are visiting. And they all join in. And, and they really appreciate that we have, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, and non-holiday-specific winter, winter songs. But they join in with even the ones that, they might not celebrate. You know, we've got people, we'll, we'll sing some of the Hanukkah songs and it really delights them. And then they stick around and they sing the Christmas songs with great joy and spirit. And I see this all season long, every single year. So I, I do believe that it's not just about Christmas, but it's about celebrating that spirit, that it's a palpable spirit of the season that transcends boundaries. And, um, I, I believe that if more people did tap into it, we would see more world peace. I really do hope that people listening to this interview take away that that sentiment from, from what we've been talking about today. The book is Defeating Scrooge, How to Harness the Power of Christmas Carols to Revive Your Spirit Any Time of the Year. Renee Baker, thank you so much for spending some time with me this morning to talk about it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And we'll end on that note. 
I want to wish you the merriest and brightest holiday may be filled with lots of time for reading, of course. See you in 2019.